The Bible reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 14 on page 981. If you'd like to turn it up for you with me. It's the story of John the Baptist's beheading. So Matthew chapter 14 on page 981. At that time, Herod the Tetrach heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered him a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for them and pleased them. Pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here, on a platter, the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. As we stand, let's pray. Gracious God, plant your word deep down in us. Cause it to bear fruit. Open up our eyes to hear. Lead us in your truth, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, do uh, turn to Matthew chapter 14, page 981. On the 16th of August, 1977, Elvis Presley died. Or did he? Did he? I wonder. I wonder if you're an Elvis death doubter. Uh, Despite um, statements from doctors and the coroner and uh, other witnesses, including his fiancée, who found him dead on his bathroom floor, a number of devoted fans still refuse to believe that the king is dead. They uh, suggest that he uh, faked his own death in order to go into hiding. Uh, And in fact, you can uh, find on the internet um, a recent theory of video footage of an 81-year-old gardener at Graceland, who it's claimed is Elvis. Take it or leave it. Um, Without wanting to make uh, a judgment on whether he was guilty or not, it's been really interesting to see the way that people have responded to the allegations against Michael Jackson. 
some people have entered into a discussion about evidence. And yet, some of his die-hard loyal fans refuse to even engage with the evidence because they refuse to believe that their hero was capable of doing those things. Now, these examples show us that it is clear in this world that whether or not you believe in something or something to be true is not always dependent on the strength of evidence. Unbelief can be caused by many different things, even when there is strong evidence to the contrary. And Herod is a classic example of that. Look at verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 1. So Herod has heard about what Jesus has been doing, and the news of Jesus' miraculous ministry has, has reached within the palace walls. And of all the responses to Jesus, verse 2 is probably one of the most bizarre. Herod says, this is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Right, okay, where's that come from? Well, it's the response of a superstitious man with a guilty conscience. And we see why in verses 3 to 4, which are a flashback to earlier events. Now Herod had arrested John and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. I was um, chatting to someone in church, a member of the church family here the other day, who had done some research into their family tree. And as they went back, they discovered some interesting and sort of sordid developments within their past. Well, that's nothing on Herod's family tree. Um, now, Herod, Herod the Great, was the Herod who was uh, ruling when Jesus was born. Now, Herod the Great had a number of children by different wives... And just to confuse you, a number of them were called Herod. Okay? So, um, on your handout, on the back of your notice sheet, is a much simplified Herod family tree. So, the, the Herod that we're reading about in Matthew 14 is the one on the right-hand side. It's Herod Antipas. Now, his brother, Aristobulus, I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but we'll go with that, had a daughter called Herodias. Now, Herodias married her uncle, Herod Philip, but then divorced him to marry Herod Antipas. I mean, you'd love to be a fly on the wall in those family gatherings, can you imagine? A bit awkward. Now, we don't know whether John's problem with, I mean, the problems are fairly obvious, but we're not quite sure what John's problem is, whether it's the incestuous nature of the marriage which was outlawed by Jewish law, or whether it's that there weren't legitimate reasons for divorce. We're not told. Either way, John the Baptist comes and confronts Herod, and Herod doesn't take it well. In fact, he wants to kill John. And look, verse 5, the, the things that stops him is that John is popular amongst the people because they considered him to be a prophet. So what we see here is that Herod is evil, but he lacks backbone. He's weak. He cares too much what people think of him. Herodias, however, 
is evil and ruthless. And at Herod's birthday party, she senses an opportunity to get the revenge that she has always wanted. When when you think of Herod's birthday party, try and not imagine a queen's, you know, Her Her Majesty's Queen's stately dinner. Okay, it's not that sort of party. From what we can tell from the cultural references at the time, these sort of parties were rowdy affairs, full of pompous men intoxicated by alcohol. And as the night goes on, Herodias' daughter, who's probably aged 12 to 14, is sent into this room to perform a sensual dance in front of all these leering, drunk men. It's hard to imagine a young girl choosing to do that, isn't it? It's most likely that her her mum, Herodias, is waiting in the wings. Her daughter's humiliation, just, just another cog in her plan. And the plan works. Herod is delighted. Now, remember Herodias' daughter is, is, is not Herod's daughter. She's from another marriage. So perhaps he cares little for her. This dancing girl has made Herod look great in front of all the lads. And now in a drunken show of pomp and arrogance, he says to the, this girl, he says, tell me what you want. I promise you I'll give you whatever you want. The poor girl, no doubt still reliant on her mother, runs to Herodias and seeks her wisdom and Herodias is utterly clear what she wants. Verse 7, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Well, the colour drains out of Herod's face because he realises what he's done. He, He doesn't want to kill John because he's popular with the people. That'd be a crazy thing to do. And yet he's made an oath in front of all the lads. And he doesn't want to lose face in front of them or or look weak. What sort of ruler denies the request of a 12-year-old girl? He's stuck between a rock and a hard place. And in the moment, he bows to the pressure in the room. Verse 9. The king was distressed. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. So matter of fact, isn't it? And yet so shocking. You can imagine the next day, Herod wakes up with the hangover of all hangovers and realises again what he's done. What will people say when they find out? Had he actually killed a prophet of God? The reason I ask that question is we know from Mark's gospel and Mark's version of these events that although Herod did want to kill John, he also recognised that John was a holy and righteous man. And he even enjoyed listening to what John had to say. So we get this picture of a a mixed man, a man who wanted John dead and yet recognised there's something about him. A holy man, a man of God, and he'd killed him. And so when John, when Herod hears about Jesus doing these miracles, 
his guilty conscience and his superstitious mind lead him to conclude that this must be the resurrected John. Come back to get vengeance. Come back to raise uh, the crowds against him. Now, it's a pretty graphic story, but you're probably thinking like I have this week, why on earth does Matthew put it here? Why does Matthew include this grisly affair of a head on a platter? Well, I think the key to understanding why Matthew puts this in is to remember that John, John the Baptist's whole ministry was about pointing people to Christ. And so in rejecting John's message and killing John, Herod effectively rejects Christ. Which makes sense, doesn't it? Because when he hears about Jesus again now in the present time, he still doesn't believe. Instead, he attributes what Jesus is doing to the ghost of John the Baptist. I think Matthew describes these events to show us what leads to unbelief in Jesus. A refusal to recognise immorality and a fear of what others think. Firstly then, a refusal to recognise immorality. You can imagine Herod enjoying some conversation with John. Listening to him, talking about theology, perhaps reflecting on the Old Testament, hearing all about John's theological views. But then there's a moment where it all changes. And it's the moment where John challenges Herod's behaviour. See, at that point, John crosses a line. It was fine for him to hold his own beliefs, but as soon as those beliefs start having an an implication for how others live, John needs to be silenced. It's gone too far. Does that sound familiar? I mean, our culture today, we're not quite putting heads on platters, are we? But it's the same thing going on behind. We silence those people that we don't like or agree with. Think of the example of Simon. Simon had been uh, really engaging with the Christian faith. He, he wasn't from a Christian home, but through the witness and love of his friend James, a Christian, he became really interested in Jesus and wanted to know more. And he'd started coming along to a Christianity Explored course, asking questions. And James was really excited. It felt like Simon was nearly there, nearly to the point of trusting Christ. And then it went wrong. Simon came along to church for the first time on a Sunday morning. And it just happened to be that week that the sermon at church was on the issue of sex and what a Christian's approach to it should be. And a few days later, Simon texts James and says, I've really enjoyed chatting about faith, but I've decided it's not for me. How could Simon get so close and then walk away? He found the evidence so persuasive. He didn't have many big questions left. But he responded with unbelief because he refused to recognise his immorality. He didn't want to be told he was wrong. He didn't want to have to change the way he lived. And you could repeat this story a thousand times over with different names in different contexts. People 
refuse to believe in Christ because they refuse to recognize their immorality. Secondly, people are led to unbelief because of a fear of what others think. Herod was a ruler, but he is a ruler crippled by fear. He couldn't kill John because he was scared of the people. He wanted to be popular. He feared the crowds. Undoubtedly, Herod's desire to kill John was uh, in part shaped by his wife Herodias. John fears the crowd, uh, Herod fears the crowds, he fears the family. And then when it comes down to it, Herod knows that killing John is wrong. But he really doesn't want to lose face in front of the lads. He fears his mates. The crowd, family, friends. Belinda was um, someone else who'd started exploring uh, the Christian things through the witness of a friend. She'd been coming to Christianity Explored. And she seemed to leave each week captivated and glowing as she met Jesus. But then the following week, by the time she came back, the glow had gone and she turned up quite cynical and cold. And the leaders were intrigued and, and wondered what had happened in between. And the reality was that she'd gone home to an unbelieving husband. And her unbelieving husband had mocked her for her growing belief in a fairy tale. See, how will we respond to Jesus? See, whether it's a, an unbelieving partner or unsupporting family or the friends who don't want anything to do with someone who's going to question the way they live. Or the lads in the office who mock faith. All these things act as a powerful, dissuasive to belief. Many young people grow up in the church family and some of them walk away and, and they don't walk away normally because of lack of evidence. They walk away because of peer pressure, a pressure to conform to the world and to fit in. A pressure that is driven by fear. Herod then, as we read this chapter, is a sobering and very contemporary reminder of why when faced with the evidence for Christ, people continue in unbelief. So, as we draw these strands together, I think this passage asks a question of all of us. It says this, how will you respond to Jesus? With faith or with unbelief? I think that's the question behind this passage and is actually the question behind much of Matthew's Gospel over, that we're going to look at over the next few weeks. There are only two responses, faith or unbelief. How will you respond? If you're not a Christian yet and you're exploring uh, the Christian faith, then can I encourage you to just ask some really honest questions of yourself? Do you not believe in... Christianity and Jesus because of lack of evidence or because you don't like the way that Jesus confronts your lifestyle, your immorality? Do you not believe in Jesus because of lack of evidence or because of pressure from those around you? You think you look like an idiot. 
You see, there's a danger when it comes to engaging with the evidence for Jesus Christ that actually we respond like some people do to the death of Elvis. We refuse to engage with the evidence. And instead, we hide behind what we want to be true or what others tell us is acceptable rather than actually engaging with the truth. Don't be like Herod. Don't dismiss Jesus for the wrong reasons. Engage with the evidence. But actually, this question is a question for all of us, even if we've been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years or longer. How will you respond to Jesus? With faith or with unbelief? You see, as we go through God's word, God's word exposes us. It challenges us. It reveals our immorality. It reveals our selfishness and our pride. It reveals our sin and shame. And if you're like me, I, we don't like it. It makes us feel uncomfortable. When Herod was confronted with his immorality, he pushes John away. He pushes Jesus away. It's too uncomfortable. So what about you? So when confronted with our failings and our sin, will we ignore Jesus and just keep on going, persist? Because the heart of that sinful attitude is unbelief. We fail to respond to Christ when we don't believe that his commands that tell us how to live are good. It's unbelief that leads us to our sin. Or will we respond with faith? When confronted with your sin, will you recognise it and will you fall, throw yourself on the mercy of Christ, entrusting your life to him and the forgiveness he gives? Matthew 14, these events tell us all to not let our immorality drive us away from Christ. And similarly, similarly not to let a fear of what others think drive us away from Christ. Every day, uh, we are called, as we will see at the end of Matthew's Gospel, to go and make disciples in all nations, to live and speak for Jesus in our world, to live amongst a world that is full of voices and pressures that would make us doubt. Voices that suggest a Christian worldview has been ruled out by scientific advancement. Voices that suggest that a Christian moral ethic is outdated, restricted and offensive. Voices that reject Jesus and call us to do the same. And sometimes those voices are the loud voices of the public square. Sometimes they are the quiet voices of people that we live with and eat with. Either way, those voices urge us to walk walk away from Christ, to respond with unbelief. And so as we face those challenges, perhaps we could learn from John. What's interesting in Matthew's Gospel is the last time that we read about John the Baptist in Matthew is back in chapter 11. And in chapter 11, John is in prison... And he's having some doubts. 
He's beginning to doubt that Jesus really is who he said he was. In, in fact, he sends one of his disciples to, to Jesus and says, are you the one who has come or should I expect someone else? You think, hang on a minute, John's whole role was to point to Jesus. Now he's questioning whether he's doing the right thing. But whatever doubts John, uh, John was having in chapter 11, by the time we get to chapter 14, they've gone. So if you want to know what it looks like to respond in faith to Jesus, then John's your man. Boldly speaking up for Christ without fear. Despite knowing what the potential consequences might be. A faith that is willing to die for Christ. That's what faith looks like. thing is, I don't know about you, but my faith feels a long way from that. My faith, and many of our faith, feels fragile, weak, trembling, and still full of doubts. Which is why when we see John in Matthew 14, we must remember that John's faith and John's death were a pointer and are a pointer to Christ. John's death is appointed to what Christ will do. Christ will give his life so that those who are stumbling and faltering in faith can be brought into his eternal kingdom. When we fail in faith, Christ is perfect. When we are trembling, Christ is bold. And Christ's faithfulness guarantees our future. So don't be discouraged. If your faith is weak, be inspired by John and know your forgiveness in Christ, the perfect faithful one. Let's pray. Loving Father, gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity this morning to be reminded of these things. We do pray that wherever we are this morning in our faith, you would move us towards belief, to our trust and dependence on you. Gracious God, guard our hearts from unbelief. But may we look to Christ, your perfect Son, whose faithfulness guarantees our future. Amen.